I always try and make sure that once the story has been told, it's not necessarily the end of the story. Brand storytelling ultimately is about building a sense of connectivity and advocacy for the brand. I always, where possible, try to create stories um, in, in my corporate role where there's a call to action. Hello, my name's Chris Meredith. And my name is Paul Fairweather. And welcome to The Common Creative. We're on a mission to understand and share the tools of creativity in business. Through the lens of stories, ideas and illustration. <laughs> this week's guest is the amazing Ika Levick, uh, Marketing Director Brand Storytelling for Deloitte in Sydney. Um, and it was fascinating to hear somebody who has storytelling in their business title. Lots of exciting learnings. Um, uh, my, my top learning was that uh, storytelling is all about the listener. It's so tempting to tell stories from your point inside out. But she was saying, no, it's all about what the listener will get, how they will benefit from the story. Look, my uh, great takeaway from it was really about uh, the fact we were there to talk about her role as brand storytelling at Deloitte's, but we started out talking about her um, journey to become an author, and she said it's not even really to do with this, and, and we ended up speaking so much about it, and that was so interesting. <laughs> and then she touched on a passion point of mine that stories, in business anyway, should finish with a call to action. That, they should finish with a challenge for your audience to do something for you, which is which is how you start to initiate change, get people to join your campaign and do something for you. So it was a really special episode. Um, why don't we get her in? See what she's got to say. Uh, welcome to the Common Creative, Ika. Yeah, welcome, Ika. Great to have you on the show. Do, can, can we talk about your writing? Um, my um, Dutch grandfather, so my mother's father, he was in... Um, the Dutch Air Force, and he was arrested in 1942, um, along with all the other servicemen, and taken into prison of war camp. So he kept a diary from May 42 to May 43, addressed to my grandmother, and that's my primary source to inspire his point of view for the book that I'm writing. But since doing all of those writing courses that you mentioned, um, I've actually um, developed my grandmother's point of view too of what it was like to live in occupied Holland in her little village in Marissa, which is just outside Utrecht. So I'm having a lot of fun um, imagining what both of their lives must have been like. Um, and I'm choosing to make her part of the resistance too. So she's going to be one of those you know, unassuming women. Nobody would ever Maybe guess. Yeah, exactly. No one would ever guess that this meek, mild-mannered, beautiful 20-something-year-old is actually helping um, hide you know, Jews and men who are trying to stay away from being kidnapped to work in, in Germany in the war factories. Have you ever, have you ever, have you ever read any Leon Uris? Yes, I love Leon Uris. I grew up on him, actually, because my father had a lot of his books. So I read um, The Exodus, which I love, even though that's not really... Um, yeah. You know, World War Two on the on the Europe front, but yeah, I love his books and also Chaim Potok. I actually love Jewish authors. Not that I'm Jewish myself, but I've always enjoyed their their writing style and their sense of community in the way that they you know bring characters to life. Yeah, no, I, I've loved. Uh, and I'm just trying to think of that. I've read all of Leon Uris's books, um, but there was one particular one where he wrote about a ghetto, um, uh, and I can't, I can't, uh, which was yeah, I can't th think of the name of it. Um, 
and I think Exodus was the first one that I read as well, which was pretty amazing. Um, that was an but, epic, amazing book, wasn't yeah, it? I love that. Yeah. yeah. Mm, and Trinity. Um, so um, yeah, well, that's um, Trinity about islands. Yeah. So um, sorry, Chris, we're not giving you any. So listen. Does it make you read the news about Ukraine differently? Because you, you have to imagine what's going on in the occupied bits of Ukraine and the, the residents there must be dealing with exactly the same issues. Kind of, do, how do I cope and, in an occupied country? And you're under pressure to kind of adopt new ways. And if you don't, then there could be consequences. And if you do, there could be consequences. Is it, do, you read, do you read the news differently now? Um, I mean, I, I am I'm very mindful of, you know, War, but I mean, I, I guess um, with the Ukraine, um, you know, they're just regular citizens under attack. They never know when they're going to get attacked. Whereas at least with Holland, because it was occupied during World War Two, they were only at war for four days um, before having to surrender because they didn't have the force to defend themselves. So yes, there was Germans and Nazis everywhere, but at least it was moderate peace because they weren't being bombed and shot unless they were caught resisting. In which case, you know, all bets are off. But yeah, I'm, 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 I'm very, thinking about the occupied area. Yeah, yeah, I think it's really, it's, it's, yeah, it's just awful, just awful. And I'm sure, I'm sure, mm-hmm. um, resistance is extremely strong in the Ukraine. I mean, given given the history between the Ukraine and Russia, but I'd love to, I'd love for that to end as soon as possible in a way that everybody can live with, so that it's not going to be yeah. you know, ongoing for years and years. So, I, what, what have you learned from reading this? incredible diary I, I don't just mean about your personal relations but what do you learned about humans you know what, what what are the insights from that diary what i've learned is the full spectrum of how people respond under duress and their sort of mental muscle um and you know some people are incredible and become natural role models and leaders and inspire everyone else to survive um and others kind of crumble under the pressure and that sort of it's almost like their spirit and their soul is overwhelmed by lack of hope. And, mm. you know, it's, so, I mean, I found some of that with my grandfather. Um, and what I'm choosing for him to have is a almost like a, a mental affair with a fellow prisoner because that's all the storytelling and the, the world building and their imagination helped them survive that camp experience. Um, and I'm choosing, I'm choosing that he kind of fell in love with the mind of the other man, um, and that sort of close bond kept them going, and they kept each other strong. So, but yeah. I mean, that's just my imagination making the most of, you know, that primary source. And my mother has given me permission to go nuts with whatever I want. Fantastic. <laughs> Start this conversation with a disclaimer um, that you can say, oh, this is this is a sort of personal passion, nothing to do with work, and so on. But your work business title has brand storyteller in it, and. And I have to say, I, I don't differentiate between work life and private life. To me, it's just one continuum. Same thing. And I, I don't believe anybody leaves themselves at home when they go to work and vice versa. So I'm sure there is a connection between the storytelling you do outside of work and the storytelling you do in work. That's what I think. Is, is it true for you? Do you bring your storytelling skills to work and vice versa? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess when we were talking about those courses before, I did them primarily with my book writing in mind. um, And because I sort of love um, how authors tackle their day to day and actually getting the words on the page. But absolutely, in a work sense, um, I bring my whole self to work. So everybody at work knows that I'm writing a book and, 
everybody outside work knows that I love creating compelling content at work. So yes, it's very, you know, blurry line. Um, and I, I guess the why one regret is I pour so much love into my job that I don't have much energy left to write with my eyeballs bleeding at the end of the night <laughs> to pour into my book. Um, so I'm trying to get better at that, but it's, it's tricky. Well, just a quick tip on that. Uh, we've spoken to a number of neuroscientists about creativity and storytelling, and they tell us to, to be at your best creatively, you need to be in a good mood, you need to be relaxed, the mind needs to feel free. So if you strap yourself to a desk at the end of a hard day, it's unlikely to happen. You need to find those moments. It, it really makes a big difference. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I sympathise with that, that dilemma, especially if you have a young family as well to cope with. How are you squeezing book writing? And my COVID dog, difficult. my needy COVID dog. <laughs> I mean, in in terms of getting in the mindset, some authors, when they're writing historical fiction, they'll listen to a certain type of music that was popular at the time, or they they light their candle to set them in the mood and have a certain aura or smell that puts them in the right writing zone. But I'm, I'm pretty good at concentrating in extreme circumstances. And I guess that comes with my consultant consulting background, the kids working at home, the dog, um, the phone constantly ringing, so I'm, I'm quite lucky. But I do like the idea of listening to, you know, amazing jazz while I write my historical fiction. I haven't tried that yet, but I should. I've actually, I found, I've, I'm, a, I'm writing as well, and I, I found a, uh, a Spotify uh, creative mood um, uh, soundtrack, which is mostly uh, classical, which I find very, very good. But I just wanted to, just on Chris's point about, you know, and, and both the discussion you've been having, um, there's a quote, it is attributed to L.P. Jacks, but I've actually had it attributed to others as well. If you know it, a master in the art of living draws no sharp distinction between his work and his play, his labour and his leisure, his mind and his body, his education and his recreation. He hardly knows which is which. He simply pursues his vision of excellence through whatever he is doing and leaves others to determine whether he is working or playing, um, which uh, I thought was very good. Um, I just also wanted to say we had one other... Uh, guest previously, uh, Simon Cleary, who is a barrister in Brisbane, and he's written three novels. Um, one of them, at least uh, I know, is historical fiction. Um, and so uh, he, he, it's worth listening to uh, that podcast. It's always listening to that podcast. Another amazing, another amazing lawyer who's turned to fiction is Alexander McCall Smith, and he punches out uh, one yeah, or two. Yeah. Um, and he only started writing at the age of about 62. So he, he inspires me that it's never too late. Um, it's like that lady who wrote Where the Crawdads Sing. She was about 62, and that's her only novel. And it's been turned into a movie by Reese Witherspoon. So anybody can start at any age, I think. Yeah, he says, well, I've got my, my book, uh, which I've been working on for maybe not quite a decade, but it's a, a creative memoir called Bald, Brave and a Bit Quirky. Um, cool. And so... <laughs> <laughs> that's my book anyway um back to back to what we we're talking about um we did actually have a couple of discussions a, a week our last interview a week before about artist studios and i've ever seen that clip of roald dahl it's like a 10 minute clip about his studio which is fantastic but the other one is and i always uh, bernard shaw if you know the story he had a little writing studio in his back garden which was uh, it was a summer house, and so it rotated. 
so you could follow the sun. Apparently, Chris told me that he had one in his back garden. They're quite common. But he called his London. So when people came calling, said, you know, is Bernard here? He says, no, his wife would say, I'm sorry, he's gone to London. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I love that. So, but back back to you, Ika. Um, so, yeah, so this this uh, this hasn't gone. We normally have a plan for our uh, interviews, but this has gone totally uh, pear-shaped in a good way to start with. Um, I, I'm going to jump, interrupt already. How do we pronounce your first name? Yeah, I'm Paul's calling you, right. Paul's Ica. Call you Ica. Ica. Yeah. It's Ika. Ika. I'm, 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 I'm named after my grandfather's mother, the grandfather I was telling you about. Um, so her name was, well, it's actually in Dutch, it's right. Ika. But anglicized version is Ika. Yeah. Ika. You can imagine That's that was done. a lot of I'm guessing it's a Dutch up. name, is that right? Yes, yeah, Dutch, yeah. Yeah. Old Dutch. <laughs> There's not many people called these days. Um, Ika, we just wanted to. Um, we, we, we have this sort of format about an idea, a story, uh, and what we call an illustration, which may be, you know, a visual image or a, a metaphor or something else. But, um, and we sort of already had great stories. <laughs> um, like in terms of, you know, is there, is there a sort of a, a, you know, a central idea or a message or insight um, around that, you know, around this maybe intersection of your work and your passion uh, around storytelling? I guess my my central idea with every story that I create for work um, and the stories that I try to tell are ones that amplify our brand um, alongside, you know, the strategic issues that we want to be known for. I always take the perspective of the person who benefits from the work that Deloitte does. So, for example, if we're working with a large health organisation in Perth and they have 55,000 employees – and we're working with an alliance partner um, to improve the back office systems, the people who benefit are the patients because the nurses and the doctors who are um, rostered at the right time, at the right way, based on busy hospitals in Perth, um, they benefit. So I, I, I will tell it from the patient's point of view and the nurses and doctors' point of view, rather than the tech side of things and the actual practical solution of improving that experience between patients and those who cares and care for them. That's just one example. Um, so I like taking you know the citizen's perspective, or the student, or the teacher, or the or the um, the, the civil servant, or who, whoever is actually at, at the receiving end of the work that we do with our clients. That's very interesting because, you know, you talked earlier about you, the, the, how you're formulating this story from the diaries and that mm. you started with your grandfather and then you moved into the perspective of your grandmother as well. So in many ways you're doing the same thing with your with your uh, historical fiction. Yeah, definitely. Ika, any, any tips on doing that? What I'm thinking is most people are obsessed with themselves and the stories and the things going on in their own heads. And so the world is viewed inside out for the bulk of people. How do you get people, how do you get yourself to look at the story from the point of view of the, the listener, the citizen, who's going well, to benefit from it? I always try and make sure that um, once the story has been told, it's not necessarily the end of the story. You can go back in six months' time and say, hey, can I talk to some of the patients or some of the nurses who've seen the impact of that improvement in scheduling, for example? So I, I try and make sure that I talk to the actual end user, even if it's not in the initial 
scoping of the story and there's a deadline that needs to be met, I'll, I'll see if there's an opportunity to, to circle back and continue to tell that perspective. So I think where possible, you know, don't be scared of asking stupid questions, firstly. And secondly, um, don't, don't give up if it, if it feels too hard to talk to the end user. But I think everybody ultimately um, is, is passionate about making a difference. And if you work in healthcare, you care about patients. So try and, try and get hold of the patients or find out if there's data that they gather from patient feedback that you can build into the story so that you're really using that sort of the coal face um, to tell ultimately a corporate story, which I, I really enjoy sort of, you know, that whole spectrum makes it more human because everybody can relate to somebody might, maybe you were a patient yourself or your brother is a patient or, you know. Mm, mm. To, to ask a stupid question and to, <laughs> you left it open. Um, is, is this work that you're doing, is it, is it sort of, uh, you know, client facing work or is this brand telling, you know, for the business as well, or is it a crossover between both? Like are the projects and like, you know, telling the story of the health, is that actually, you know, is it your, you know, working the brand or is it actually client consulting work? I know, so I don't do any client consulting personally, but I do create content for teams who are client-facing, if that makes sense. So it might be case studies or client impact stories right, or yeah, okay. making sure that we the way that we take something to market um, represents our credentials. So... Um, yeah, I'm not actually client facing, but that could potentially be something that I end up doing again. But it's not something that I've done for Deloitte. Occasionally, I'll help with a proposal or a pitch, um, right. mostly right. in the credential space because that's where storytelling comes in. Um, but yeah, no, I don't. I'm already busy enough. I can't <laughs> can't also do client work. I'd fall off my perch. <laughs> <head. laughs> I know. I just wanted to. I just because when you started yeah. talking about, because I, I thought that's what you did do, but I just wanted to clarify that. Uh, so I was just going to ask about, we've talked about the similarities between your, your personal passions for storytelling and writing a novel um, and how the linkages with work life. But I just, uh, brands discovered storytelling, or oh, I don't know, five or six, maybe a bit longer than that, ago. I, I grew up as a brand manager in a big company. And when I was a brand manager, we, we kind of instructed our consumers what to think about our brands. It was a, a flawed idea, but that's what we tried to do. Um, and since then, brand managers discovered this idea of storytelling. And I, so I guess my question is really, what's the difference between storytelling for brands, services, products, and storytelling for ordinary people? Or isn't there a difference? What, how does it compare, corporate versus personal storytelling? I think... Um... Brand storytelling ultimately is about building a sense of connectivity and advocacy for the brand, ideally so that there's a sense of loyalty, which means that um, you're inclined to recommend or buy from that brand. Whereas I think more, more general storytelling um, needs to be magnetic for your heart and your mind, and there's not necessarily a financial transaction involved other than buying the book or buying the podcast. Um, I think that with brand, there's, there's a there's a financial benefit as well. You know, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's about building that loyalty. Um, but I mean, I, I have go-to authors, and I'll always buy their book, and I'll always try and buy independently. So I guess that's financial as well. I, I just think hum, it's human nature to to build a sense of um, connectivity through storytelling, and I think that brands have just 
use that to their advantage to to build loyalty for themselves. I think it makes sense. It's a natural evolution, isn't it? Mm, mm. No, there's, there's some research that shows human beings only connect through stories. They're, the brain can't process things except as stories. So even if you're presenting what you think are facts, let's say a series of data points, the human brain interprets it as a story. And so it makes perfect sense for brands to embrace storytelling because that's how a human brain thinks. It's the language of the human brain across cultures, across time, and so on. So it, it makes perfect sense to do that. And I guess it's, it's you know, it's the way that we've traditionally um, informed the current generation about what the past did through storytelling over campfires, you know, that whole word of mouth idea. Um, and I think we've just we've just commercialized it because it makes sense to do so and people people desire it. Otherwise it wouldn't exist. Yeah. Um, we have we've just interviewed uh, Yuri Hassan. I don't know if you know of him. He's a neuroscientist from uh, Princeton and um, he's got a TED a TED talk and and it was a fantastic interview and it'll hopefully be published in about a month. We're gonna do a, a whole little mini season on neurocreativity. But he, his basic learnings, you know, uh, and studies that he's done. Uh, do, do you know of his theory? Do you know of his his work? No, I don't. No. Uh, so basically, what what he's what he's discovered is that um, the brain patterns in a storyteller are the same in the audience for good storytellers. So he did this study where if you listen to a uh, watched a movie and did the brain pattern and then had that person tell that story and then had the person listening to that story all the brain patterns are the same. And so it's really effectively, it gives you the ability, you know, the science behind it is why it works is you're actually implanting your brain waves in someone else's head. Um, and that's difficult to do with ideas because ideas fire differently. And, you know, if I give you an idea, you'll come up with another idea. And so it's, it's a really interesting and powerful thing to know. So that'll be coming out hopefully. But if you, can, you can look at his TED, TED talk, uh, Yuri Hassan, uh, and uh, he, uh, yeah, it's it's a really interesting science piece. Um, so, like in now knowing that, do, do you does that sort of uh, ring true for your experience? I mean, it's interesting that you say that because I always, I always, where possible, try to create stories um, in in my corporate role where there's a call to action rather than something that I throw over the fence and hope that it lands somewhere. Whereas with ideas, um, like you said before, ideas, are, it's almost like an invitation to debate and continue to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Whereas with storytelling, it tends to be, you know, a, a 500 up to 3,000 piece of content. And then you sort of go, oh, well, that was amazing. And what's next? But I try and say, you know, talk to us or, come, or, or, or read more similar content, uh, try and keep that conversation going beyond the story. So it's a different form of engaging humans, really, isn't it? Because um, if, if, I, if I think about stories yeah, that and are... There's, there's science behind it. Yeah. I mean, I just think um, I always put myself in the, in the reader's shoes. So I, I know what I love consuming um, as, as, a, as a story lover. So I always keep that in mind when I create content and try and humanize it as much as possible and try and cut the corporate jargon and bullshit out um, and just keep it as authentic as possible with a bit of personality and um, you know 
try and find those little gems that make it memorable and repeatable. Because if you can't repeat a story that you've just heard, then where where the, the story reach is very limited. Like I want people to talk about it in the lift at the barbecue to their friend. You know, this is what I heard today. Isn't it incredible? Like I'd, I'd love, I'd try and create almost like a, a gorilla approach to making sure that stories get out there and keep being told and shared. And that's, 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 you know, I he said in the nibble, is that right? In the nibble, yeah, nibbling, yeah. nibbling. We've invented a new story. Absolutely. Nibbling. Snackable no, content, I, I like it, in the nibble. He can um, be snackable. You've got me thinking. Uh, one thing, I, I, I have taught storytelling courses that, that highlight exactly the same difference that you highlighted, which is that in business, a story should finish with a call to action, if you like a... Mm. A, a challenge to your audience to either accept or reject a piece of change usually are you going to buy this idea or not do something for me and the world of fictional storytelling can quite easily finish with a nice pretty bow on top and that's how things have ended and i, I you've got me thinking because i wonder if all stories should finish with some kind of call to action even if it's quite subtle and implied basically a challenge do you do you agree with the the, the theme in this story, the, the, the concept that's in this story, or not. Because I'm, I'm wondering if all stories should have inside them some kind of challenge or learning point that say, you, do you, what do you think of this? It's, so I'm, I'm challenging myself and I'm challenging you that all stories should finish with a call to action. What do you think? I, th- I think so. And, I, and the call to action can either be, I want to find out more by, by reading other authors who've written about the same time period or the same person or the same challenge, or, um, you know, even if it means that you just become an advocate for buying books, it's as simple as that, isn't it? Or tell other people about the book and get them Mm. to read it. So there's, there's sort of very fuzzy call to actions and very clear call to actions, but I guess there's that sense of always wanting more. You don't just read one story and then you're done with it. You become somebody who's passionate about, enjoying amazing content and sharing that love with your friends who might then also want to start reading or creating more content. Yeah. It's actually interesting. And just to chime in on this discussion, if you've read uh, Austin Cleons, he's got a couple of little books, Steal Like an Artist. And um, and in that he he talks and Chris and I talk about the, you know, the, the three act of a story, the, the, the inciting incident, the setup inciting incident, act one, act two, the messy middle and act three, the climax and the resolution. But Austin yep. Cleon makes a point in one of his books, and I can't remember which one it is, that basically any presentation or pitch, um, the resolution is left to the audience. You know, you cannot finish that story because, you know, once you put it out there, whatever it might be, the audience decides what the next step is, not you. And I, and I thought that was a fantastic sort of insight because it's true. You know, whether it's a call to action or whatever we're doing, inspiring someone to do it. So in that sense, you're empowering the audience to decide for themselves what the end of the story is. But I think some, some stories or some, some books, they have a very clear ending and there's, there's no, nothing left to the imagination. But I, and sometimes as a reader, I find it frustrating if I have to work too hard to make the ending up for myself. Sometimes I like having clearer parameters so that I have a really good idea of what's happened to a character or a situation because I care about them. I've invested my my energy in getting to know them. And other times um, 
if it's a really abrupt end and I'm supposed to make up the ending for myself, I, I find that quite shocking because I think, oh, it makes you think, but it's also frustrating because you never find out the real truth because the, the author is just left it hanging for you. Um, so I think it depends on, on, the, on the writing style. The cliff. I see, I, I've just finished a book called The Lonely Man and I found the ending so frustrating but it's given me an idea for a book, <laughs> which you know will be the next decade, uh, because I think that I think the premise of his story was great, but I think the way that he, you know, he ended it was terrible. So I want to rewrite it with a, you know, with a different approach, but a different ending. I, I did have one question. Um, are you aware and or a fan of the Moth? No, uh, I'm not aware of the Moth, but it does ring a bell. I feel like I should know about it. Yeah, so The Moth is a podcast uh, based on a series of storytelling events, live storytelling, uh, live as remembered, uh, you know, by the teller. Um, and they, have a, they do have live events, or they did have live events pre-COVID. Um, they've never had any in Brisbane, but they used to have regularly in Sydney. And I went once and, and put my name in the hat. So you put your name in the hat for a five-minute story. Um, it's a story slam. But it's, it's absolutely brilliant, um, you know, stories on that podcast. But... You know, it's something to consider. I, mean, I think they're probably coming back if they're not already. Uh, I think they were partnered with the ABC in Sydney uh, cool. for the uh, the moth storytelling. So, yeah, something you know, as a as a fellow storyteller, uh, it's really worth looking into to listen to. Anyway, I used to I used to do a monthly writing competition called Furious Fiction, which was um, it used to be monthly, but now it's quarterly. Managed through the Australian Writers' Centre, and they give you three or four prompts. Um, at a certain time, now it's every quarter, and it might be three emojis. And the idea is to write a 500-word story within 48 hours, and then you find out whether you're shortlisted. Um, so that, but that's a good way, if you're struggling with your novel or your book or your content creation, it's a good way just to, you know, sit tight and, and focus and get it done. Um, so, I yeah, should, I, I, just, I love that. Yeah, there's another one, uh, New York Challenge, do you know, or N, uh, oh, yes. New York Midnight yeah. Challenge. So yeah. I, I've, I've entered a couple of those and I've been, I'm waiting to hear my, I've, I got shortlisted on my first round, I'm waiting to hear my second. But it's only, it was only 100 words and three prompts, uh, a setting, oh, an action wow. and, and a word. Uh, and my God, 100 words is tough. It's really it's tough. tough. It's uh, basically like so, writing a video script, isn't it? Writing a, sorry? It's like writing a video script. A hundred words isn't long at all. No, well, in fact, it's funny you should say that because I also do scripts, and the current yeah. challenge is is a script, um, and I've never written a script. and And I looked at it, and I thought, oh, it's that's too hard. Um, the great thing is on the hundred word one, it's midnight to midnight in New York, so it's like two o'clock in the afternoon to two o'clock in the afternoon. So much better uh, for us. You don't have to stay up to midnight. You can, uh, you get, I think we get a much better uh, bang for our buck. So anyway, uh, sorry, Chris, you were going to say something. Um, no, I was, I was um, wondering about a, a topic that's personally interesting to me right now. Uh, and it, it, the question is about how storytelling plays as an idea in the kind of cutthroat world of consulting and Deloitte. Uh, what I'm thinking is that the consultants at Deloitte, they're, they're the kind of classically analytical, super intelligent, give me the facts, don't muck about, get to the heart of the issue. And you introduce a concept like storytelling, it could be received as a, 
oh, a piece of puffery, um, uh, something super lightweight, not relevant to the, the white heat of business and commerce. So my, I guess my question is two parts. How does storytelling play in Deloitte? And secondly, how do you address the topic of someone who says, what matters is the facts, not stories. Stories is kind of like lightweight stuff. Well, it's interesting. So my, my role was actually created um, as a result of Deloitte globally driving storytelling as a strategic priority for the firm everywhere. Um, so I'm, I'm the only storyteller in Australia. Um, and th there's a community of practice across Deloitte of storytellers. And many, many don't do it as a full-time job. And to be honest, I do a lot of marketing as well as storytelling. But um, there, are, there are those partners who fully understand the role that storytelling plays in making it easy to talk about and think about Deloitte, which is what we want. And for us, we'll do, we, we use storytelling to, to create a sense of distinction from the other big professional services firms and to make it easy for people to understand how we're different and better and what we stand for and what we don't do. Um, and I, I've been in the role for about 18 months now. And um, what, what I love about it most is that, um, as, as you were alluding to before, the content that you create there's lots of scope to use different channels. So there's video scripts, there's blogs, there's what we call client um, impact stories, which is a global template that gets used around the firm um, in all our different countries. Um, there might be a keynote at a conference or might be just as short as a little LinkedIn post, just to, just to tease the audience about something that's incredible with a call to action in, in, in that LinkedIn post. So I, I love the variety of short form, long form, uh, talking with um, a Deloitte hat on or talking with a Deloitte partner hat on. So I, I get to uh, be lots of different people all the time and, and try and make sure that I I bring their perspective to life as long as it's done in a way that's of interest to the people that we are targeting and the people who we care about. So, for example, recently um, I helped one of our partners um, with her keynote, which was all about the role that cloud can play in helping organizations take meaningful, tangible climate action. So that was really interesting for me, is trying to figure out, you know, the burning platform is climate change, of course, um, but the secondary message is, you know, Literally. cloud is much more than technology. It's actually an environmental initiative, and a lot of people don't think of it as one of the tools that you can embrace to take climate action as quickly and as efficiently as possible. So it's always interesting. I mean... The partners at Deloitte, there's 930 in Australia and, um, you know, thousands globally. They are so smart and so purpose-driven on the whole um, that it's it's always inspirational um, spending time with them. And obviously all of our other team members as well. We've got about um, 12,500 people in Australia and over 350,000 people globally. So it's a big it's a big firm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mind-boggling. Um, Ika, I just wanted to uh, divert a little bit, and I don't know if you have time to think about this, but, you know, Chris and I have this program, Ideas, Stories, and Illustrations That Matter. Um, we're both visual. Chris is a photographer. I'm a painter, and I'm a recovering architect. Um, and as we say, you know, uh, an illustration doesn't have to be, you know, to illustrate an idea or a story doesn't have to necessarily be an image. It can be a metaphor or analogy or a case study or, you know, different things. But um, in, in what you're, you know, talking about, we've talked about, both about 
brand storytelling and your own personal storytelling. Is there an image um, that that comes to mind that you know that you would share with us um, that might encapsulate this this you know I- idea uh, that you have around storytelling? Probably Ernst Hemingway, black and white photograph in his cabin, you know, tearing his hair out, looking very artistic and self-important, but <laughs> awesome at the same time. Um, I'm actually reading a book at the moment which features him and his wife um, in World War II because she was um, a a photojournalist who was trying to cover um, the war, but they were very strict with how close women could get to the action. Um, And I I loved his his arrogance, but I feel like he got away with it because he was a true artist. You know, that sort of old-school, old-school storytelling, but with... He, he owned it. Um, not that I think that everybody should do it that way, but I find him quite inspirational. Um, so, and I love that photo of him. Right. Is that, uh, is that a photo or is that hey? It's a photo. It's a photo that of him. I'll, I'll see if I can find it and I'll send right. it to you. <laughs> yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. That, that, that's fantastic. And I, and I love that, that image, you know, that certainly does illustrate, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the whole, process of storytelling of writing of you know like uh that moment so yeah that's uh i think think what you're saying is that there's a sense he he owned it that he there's a sense of unquestioning belief in the power of storytelling i mean i always i'm not sure i would like to meet i kind of do want to meet hemingway but he would be he would have been so arrogant so sure of himself i think and so i'm not i think he would be quite an abrasive character but so maybe for that reason it would be great to meet someone like that um so yeah okay i think a very powerful image and thank you for that yeah i i i I don't know it so we'd love to see it so listen um we we we, our unfortunately our time is uh drawing to a near we could we could go on uh, for hours, Ika. <laughs> I think we've only just touched the surface. Uh, we, you know, like uh, surface on uh, on so many different topics, and just love this whole thing of you know your passion for storytelling uh, in your own personal private passion and how you apply that to your work, which I think is you know is is a great in, you know, intersection. And um, so, look, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been uh, absolutely fabulous. Ike, I'm going to put you on the spot before we close. Uh, there are going to be many hundreds of thousands of people listening to this podcast, I am sure. Um, are you able to reveal either what the book is going to be called, the book you're writing, or when it's going to be published? There's this great chance to, to give it a The, the working title is The Record Keeper um, because I like the idea of stories helping to keep record of what happened, even though it's fictionalised historical fiction. Um and I've, I've missed my deadline of when it was going to be published. I was going to write the whole thing by the time I turned 50, and I'm turning 51 in August. So <laughs> I'm, um, I'm well and truly behind, but I would, I would, I'm very motivated to finish the story um, while my mother is healthy and um, completely with it um, so that she can enjoy it. So this year's Mother's Day present was a commitment to email her chapters and updates and scenes throughout the course of the year so that we get to enjoy it together and she can give me any feedback that she might have because I'm talking about her parents. 
what a wonderful way of a involving somebody else in the process but also giving yourself a, a deadline i think that's brilliant but the record keeper um anybody listening keeping out i'm sure it's going to be available in all good bookshops before too long uh, i've really enjoyed chatting to you and such a passionate storyteller great privilege to have you on our show thank you very much indeed thank you it's lovely talking to you both thanks chris and paul Oh, that was entertaining, Chris. I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to keep on talking. That was such a great chat. Uh, but uh, we do try to keep our our episodes to around thirty minutes. Uh, and it, you always learn so much when you hear about what people do outside of work. I think it inevitably informs what they do at work. And of course, with Ika, we've got a, a budding author, and what a special story about her grandfather and that actual diary from a prisoner of war camp. Um, so apart from being great business learnings, a fascinating insight, not just into Ika, but her family and her storytelling. Yeah. And look, and also even just when we've put on the spot and asked her for an illustration and, you know, you and I have been talking about it saying, well, you know, maybe it could be the diary or something like that or that German stamp saying it's approved. But her image of a very sort of wild Hemingway um, is, uh, is great. So... Yeah, so look, a, a fantastic wrap-up of ideas, stories, and illustration that matter, and a, and a great interview. It thoroughly enjoyed that. So we'd love to hear, if you're listening in, we'd love to hear what you think. Um, what do you think about the idea of the intersection between work and your passions outside of work? Uh, what do you think about having a call to action at the back end of your stories? Or have you got an example of telling a story with a listener in mind rather than the story that the storyteller wants to? to tell um pop your comments um give us some feedback we'd love you to subscribe and most of all tell your friends about the common creative um hope to see you on next week's episode ciao for now <laughs>